is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, Johnny Cash was born. And so we're going to spend the next hour talking about his life, playing his music, hearing from his son, hearing from other artists playing his music, and hearing from Rick Rubin, the man who resuscitated this life and career and act and art. A remarkable story. But when you're telling a story, you've got to start at the beginning. Born in Kingsland, Arkansas. The son of poor Southern Baptist sharecroppers. Cash was one of seven children born to Ray and Carrie Rivers Cash. They moved with his family at the age of three to Dicey's, Arkansas, so that his father could take advantage of the New Deal farming programs instituted by President Roosevelt. There, the Cash clan lived in a five-room house and farmed 20 acres of cotton and other seasonal crops. We went into the vault to dig out some clips. And here's Johnny talking about his childhood in Arkansas in those cotton fields, about the house that he was born in. February 26, 1932, in a little house surrounded by cotton fields. My father was a cotton farmer, walked behind the mules with the plow, and I did that as well. It was a family thing. Everybody in the family worked in the fields. Even the girls did. There's some sweet memories and some sad memories too, but, but it was a good life. But it was a good life. It was a hard life. But the hardest thing that happened to Johnny was losing his older brother and a star older brother one he really looked up to. Here's Johnny's son, John Carter Cash, talking about his dad and his dad's brother. If it hadn't been for losing Jack, there's no telling if he ever would have gone on to sing the songs that he sang with such heartache, you know, um, related to so many people, you know, his, his suffering so easily because it was on his sleeve. He had a great understanding and closer spiritual relationship with God because he came in and studied in Jack's stead. And though he continued to sing and followed his heart's desire um, in music, he still delved even deeper into studying the Bible, my father did, in life because I believe that he had that desire to be who he believed Jack would have been. And he believed Jack would have been a pastor and a man of the cloth. Here's John Carter Cash, again, Johnny's son, talking about his dad's love of gospel music. This is the first music he ever fell in love with. You're also going to hear in this clip from Marshall Grant from the Tennessee Two, who was in the room that fateful day Cash auditioned in Memphis for Sam Phillips. My father's greatest desire when he got into the music business, he wanted to sing gospel songs on the radio. And I think, you know, I think it was only later on that he realized that, that you know, he, he might be actually making records in the studio and that they'd be recorded. He just wanted to sing on the radio. When we went to audition for Sam Phillips, 
it was still gospel music that we wanted to do. And we auditioned for Sam Phillips at Sun Records with a song called I Was There When It Happened. So I guess I ought to know. Well, I was there when it happened, and so I guess I ought to know. And if you remember in that scene from Walk the Line, Joaquin Phoenix walks into that studio. He sings that song. Sam Phillips is just shaking his head. He doesn't buy what Johnny's selling. And, well, here's the exchange in that movie. We come down here, we play for a minute, and he tells me I don't believe in God. You know exactly what I'm telling you. We've already heard that song a hundred times, just like that, just like how you were singing it. Well, he didn't let us bring it home. (laughs) Bring it home? All right, let's bring it home. If he was hit by a truck and you were lying out in that gutter dying and you had time to sing one song, huh? one song people would remember before your dirt, one song that would let God know what you felt about your time here on earth, one song that would sum you up, you telling me that's the song you'd sing, that same Jimmy Davis tune we hear on the radio all day about your peace within and how it's real and how you're going to shout it? Or would you sing something different? And my goodness, he started to sing something different. What's left out of Walk the Line, and we'll get into in subsequent segments in this hour, is that he did keep on singing gospel. But ultimately, this, not soon thereafter, not long after this exchange, was Johnny Cash's first number one song. And the number one billboard hit for him on the country charts. And here it is. on this heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds because you're mine I walk the line Lyrics that weren't exactly shake, rattle, and roll I keep a close watch on this heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds because you're mine I walk the line. His Christian essence there, right from the beginning. The struggles between flesh and the spirit. A song about marital fidelity and his struggles with it. And he would have them. And he sung honestly about them. And so for the hour, the life of Johnny Cash is you won't hear anyone else on Our American Stories. But Our American Stories. And that's why we do what we do for you. These are the stories you want to hear when we come back more on the life of Johnny Cash, born this day in history in 1932. I walk the line. You've got a way to keep me on your side. You give me calls for love that I can't hide. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, 
come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Johnny Cash being celebrated on this day in history. There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down. When the man comes around. And that man, of course, to Johnny Cash was, well, we know who that man is. And Walk the Line did not get into this. And it was a great movie. But it stripped the animating force of Cash's life. And that was God. And that was Jesus Christ. And Johnny wrote about his sin. We learned that about Scalia. His sin. We, you know, Christians have to talk about their sin or they're not, they're not being honest. And this, if anything, Johnny Cash was. And I think that's the appeal. And this movie just focused on his love of June, but not on his love of Christ. And let me tell you, Johnny did. He recorded the entire King James Version of the New Testament. Did you know that? He performed countless Billy Graham revivals, made a movie about the life of Jesus, and studied the Bible so much, he almost had a, well, I think he knew more about it than most Divinity School PhDs. Somehow none of that made it to the screen. Let's take a listen to Johnny's reading of Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, And the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. None of it in the movie Walk the Line. Leaving out Cash's Christian faith, from his life story would be like leaving out half-naked women from you Hefners, or like telling the story of Jackie Robinson without ever mentioning race or segregation. You know, Cash was interviewed quite a number of times about his drug addiction. He spoke openly about his bouts with it and his selfishness. In one interview with Songwriter Magazine, he said this, You don't think about anyone else. When you're on drugs, you think about yourself and where your next stash is coming from or your next drink. I wanted and wasted so much. I mean, we're not talking days I wasted. We're talking years, maybe decades. What a confession. Believers and non-believers alike know about such struggles. That's what attracted so many people to Cash's music, his humility, his empathy. Here's a story that should have been in the the movie. 
It's out of his book, out of the book. And I think if you can read one book about Johnny Cash, it's called A Man Called Cash by Steve Turner. The book was supposed to be based on this. The, the movie was supposed to be based on this book, but my goodness, all the good stuff's not in the movie. Turns out Cash in the 1990s wanted to kill himself. And so he decided to go to Chattanooga, not far from his home, to a place called the Nickajack Caves where he spent a lot of time. And he had spent time there early in his life hunting for treasures such as Indian arrowheads and items left behind by Confederate soldiers. But on this occasion, again, he was looking to end his life. This is what he told writer Nick Toshis in 1995. And again, what a scene this would have made in the movie. Cash saying, I just felt like I was at the end of the line. I was down there by myself and I got to feeling that I took so many pills that I'd done it. That I was going to blow up or something. I hadn't eaten in days, I hadn't slept in days, and my mind wasn't working too good anyway. I couldn't stand myself anymore. I wanted to get away from me. And if that meant dying, then okay. I took a flashlight with me into those caves, and I said to myself, I'm going to walk and crawl and climb into that cave until the light goes out, and then I'm just going to lie down. And so I crawled in there with that flashlight, until it burned out and I laid down to die. I was a mile in that cave, at least a mile. And by the way, this cave is filled with over 100,000 bats. But I felt this great comforting presence come over me. And it was saying, no, you're not dying. I got things for you to do. And so I got up, found my way out. Cliffs, ledges, drop-offs. I don't know how I got out. Except... God got me out. Not in the movie. How does that happen? How does that happen? Well, I think we know how that happens. His love for June is all over that movie, but not his love for Christ. And he loved June because of her almost perfect love for Christ. He said it over and over again. Here's another story that wasn't in the movie. This may be my favorite. In August of 1969, hundreds of thousands of young Americans gathered in Woodstock to catch this concert that at the time no one knew would be Woodstock. I mean, it turned out to be one of the great concerts of all time. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Creedence, Clearwater, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. You name them, they were there. Sly and the Family Stone. It was everybody. Chris Christopherson had wanted his buddy Johnny Cash to go. Johnny had a show at this time on CBS. And he generally loved to introduce all kinds of new musical acts. We'll get into that in the next segment. His first time ever. His two musical guests were two kids named Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell. So he loved musicians and he loved celebrating them. But on this particular night, and by the way, that was ABC, not CBS, but on this particular night, he decided to close out his show with one of his favorite gospel songs. And let's take a listen. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble.
perhaps his most famous recordings were ones he made in prisons, especially his two shows at Folsom Prison. Cash seemed at home there. He didn't see himself as better than those men. He was just one of the guys. He understood the prisoners in ways they realized without him ever saying anything. It didn't hurt that he'd written some of his best songs from the point of view of condemned and convicted men. Again, a sinner. He related. The inmates loved him for that. Actually, America loved him for that. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head Bono once said of Cash, he doesn't sing for the damned, he sings with the damned. And that was the true mark of Cash's Christian faith, the empathy he had for men and women, often overlooked in our society. When Cash got serious about his faith and left the women and alcohol behind, some of his old friends were not very happy with him. Quote, They'd rather I be in prison than church, Cash admitted. Waylon Jennings was especially tough on Cash, according to Turner, accusing him of selling out to religion. He'd be attacked by agnostics and atheists if he appeared too pious, explained Stephen Turner, his biographer, and he would be denounced by the religious community if he appeared too worldly. Talk about a tough line Cash had to walk, but he tried to walk it. Cash was once asked how he was able to reach so many people with his message without ever hiding his faith. He had a simple, superb answer. I am not a Christian artist. I am an artist who is a Christian. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The life of Johnny Cash, born this day in history in 1932. We're telling you the story like no one else is. When we come back, more of his music. And I'll keep this world from dragging me down Gonna stand my ground And I won't back down Hey, baby There ain't no easy way out Hey, I... About the time my daddy left to fight the big war Saw my first pistol in the general store In the general store when I was 13 Thought it was the finest thing I ever had seen I asked if I could have one when I grew up Mama dropped a dozen eggs and she really blew up She really blew up and I didn't understand Mama said the pistol is the devil's right hand She really blew up And that's Johnny Cash covering the great Steve Earle song. He loved the younger writers. The younger writers loved him. In fact, perhaps Bob Dylan's best record, Nashville Skyline, my favorite. Uh, He does a recording of North Country Girl, his song, with one of his heroes, Johnny Cash, and here's what it sounded like.
if you're traveling to the North Country Fair, where the winds hit heavy on the borderline, remember me to one who lives there. For she once was a true love of mine. See for me that her hair's hanging down. It curls and falls all down her breast. See for me that her hair's hanging down. That's the way I remember her best. And that was Johnny, about as good as he sounded. There was a period of time in the 70s and 80s when he sounded like a Johnny Cash cover artist. I saw him at the Lone Star Cafe twice. Once it was very sad, and I didn't get it. And I walked out, and he was on something, and it sounded terrible. And then I saw him again in a more acoustic setting, and I'd never seen anything like it. And we're going to get to that in just a bit. We wanted to talk about Johnny's talent as a storyteller. Because, boy, was he a storyteller. And I don't think he does it better than in this song that we all know. And let's hear a bit of it. I want you to, to if you don't mind, Carl, I'd like you to stay out and help us on some songs. Play the I'd guitar. Love to. One of the greatest guitar players as well as songwriters and singers in the business. Thank Appreciate you. a little help on the guitar, all right? Love it. Thank you, Carl. <laughs> Well, my daddy left home when I was three And he didn't leave much to Ma and me Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze Now, I don't blame him cause he run and hid But the meanest thing that he ever did Was before he left, he went and named me Sue Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke And it got a lot of laughs from a lots of folks Seems I had to fight my whole life through some gal would giggle and I'd get red And some guy'd laugh and I'd bust his head I'll tell you, life ain't easy for a boy named Sue <laughs> Well, I grew up quick and I grew up mean My fists got hard, my wits got keen Roamed from town to town to hide my shame But I made me a vow to the moon and stars I'd search the honky-tonks and bars And kill that man that give me that awful name well, it was Gatlinburg in mid-July And I'd just hit town and my throat was dry I thought I'd stop and have myself a brew At an old saloon on a street of mud There at a table dealing stud Sat the dirty mangy dog that named me Sue Well, I knew that snake was my own sweet dad From a worn-out picture that my mother had And I knew that scar on his cheek and his evil eye he was big and bent and gray and old And I looked at him and my blood ran cold And I said, my name is Sue How do you do? How are you gonna die? And it just goes on. In fact, stopping this song is really hard to do. But what a story. What a storyteller. In 1999, a bunch of artists got together in a star tribute to Johnny. And Bruce Springsteen 
who had actually inspired Johnny, and Johnny covered several of Bruce's songs, Highway Patrolman, State Trooper, from the Nebraska record. Bruce did an introduction before he performed a song. Let's take a listen to that intro. Johnny, I want to send out a big thanks for the inspiration. Uh, you kind of took the... Uh social consciousness from folk music and the the gravity and humor from country music and the rebellion out of the rock and roll and and taught all us young guys that not only was it all right to to tear up all those lines and boundaries, but it was important. And uh, this was a song I loved from the early recordings for a long time. It would be like it. And then Bruce covers it in a way, ultimately, just him and a guitar, that would bring... Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash together to do just the same. Take a listen. I found him by the railroad tracks this morning. I could see that he was nearly dead. I knelt down beside him and I listened to the words dying. He said they let me out of prison Being free school For ten long years I paid for what I'd done I was trying to get back on losing Just to see my rules and get to know my son Give my love to Rose, won't you, mister? Hey, give her this money, tell her to buy some pretty clothes. Tell my boys daddy's proud of them. Don't forget to give my love to Rose. Tell my boy my daddy is proud of him. Something I think Johnny always wanted to hear from his own dad. Bring my love to Rose, one of my favorites, Bruce's favorite. And then a little bit later, Dave Matthews comes out with Emmy Lou Harris and take a listen. Well, I spoke not a word, though it my life, And as Bruce had said, that's what Johnny did. He broke down walls. And think about the artists who loved him and admired him that night. Everybody from Bruce Springsteen to Bono. An Irish rocker, an American rocker. Snoop Dogg, Trent Reznor. All of them openly admired this openly evangelical Southern man. And all because Johnny dared to smash stereotypes transcend musical categories and share himself with the world for better or for worse 
And I got to say, especially for worse. And when we come back, you're hearing Johnny sing the Trent Reznor song, Hurt. We're going to talk about this unique relationship between Cash and his producer, Rick Rubin. And it is special. And you've never heard this before. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. On this day in history, in 1932, Johnny Cash was born. Familiar sting. Try to kill it all away. But I remember everything. What have I become? Delia, oh Delia, Delia all my life. If I hadn't a shot, oh Delia, I'd have had her for my wife. Delia's gone. One more round, Delia's gone. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And that MTV video and that American recording song, Delia's Gone, put Johnny Cash back on the map. He bumped into a guy named Rick Rubin, who was a producer of the Beastie Boys and some heavy metal bands. But, well, he was drawn to this, this guy, just drawn to him. And we're lucky enough, Jesse did some digging and found an interview between Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash. And what had happened at Cash was he'd sort of become a, well, let's sort of just say a cover act of himself. And he had lost touch and contact with that original artist, those original feelings back in that Sun studio. And between the drugs and some bad decision making, I think he had lost himself as an artist. And it took this young Buddhist, because Rick Rubin was a Buddhist and is, to get him in touch with his, actually, I think his faith, his songwriting, the guitar, and that microphone, and nothing else. Let's take a listen from the documentary on the production of the American recordings of Johnny Cash. We hear this master producer, Rick Rubin, talking about how he realized that he wanted to work with his country legend. Most of the artists that I had worked with at that time were all new bands and young artists, and I was thinking it'd be really fun to work with a substantial grown-up artist. And I started thinking about all of the great legendary artists and who may have been in a, in a place that maybe either wasn't doing his best work or wasn't in a good situation. And Johnny was the first one that came, in, came into my mind of really legendary status, important a timeless artist. Well, here's Johnny talking about his first recollection of meeting Rick Rubin backstage at one of his concerts and how they eventually started talking about recording together. Rick Rubin called my manager, Lou Robin, and said he would like to talk to him about recording me. And Lou invited him to come to a concert. So he came to a concert a few miles south of Los Angeles. And I met him backstage, and we didn't really talk about me recording with him then. We talked about the record business and what I had been doing and what I hadn't been doing, mainly. But he said, I'd like to talk to you again. You know, it was getting late, so he came to another concert. And we sat back backstage and talked, and he said, I'd like to record you on American. And I said, what would you do with me that that uh, everybody else is 
tried to do, you know, and couldn't. And he said, well, what would you like to do? He said, that's what I'll do. And I, you know, I said, well, I would like to just take my guitar and sit down in front of a microphone and, and sing until I found the songs that I wanted to record and then record them the way that, that I feel like they should be done. And, and he said, well, that's what I want. He said, I want to get the best out of you, whatever you want to do. That's what I want to get on record. How about that? What an idea. It can be that simple time, sometimes, folks. It can be that simple. Here, Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin talk about how they started recording in Rick's living room. What a smart move. Get out of that studio. The Some first thing that we did in working together was kind of reframe the record-making experience from making just another album to we're not done until this is the best album you've ever made in your life. And whatever that takes is what we're going to do. Okay. And um, it was, it's like this is your first album. It sounded like a dream come true for me because I had always wanted to uh, record this way. I'd always wanted to. I have 25 years ago, I had a conversation with Marty Robbins. I said, I always wanted to record an album called Johnny Cash, Late and Alone. And uh, I told Ruben this. This is what I really would like to do. And uh, he said, let's do it. So we sat down and we, we made a deal. And I sat down in front of a microphone in his living room and went through my list of 200 or more songs and started singing them one after another. And we recorded them as I went along. In this clip, Rick Rubin talks about how he wanted to show the real Johnny Cash. Johnny says it gave him a new enthusiasm, an enthusiasm he never thought he would ever get to experience again. I was really interested in getting to the heart of who he was and really exposing that and, and showing the world who he really was. Like about 18 and 25. It's given me an opportunity to uh, express myself artistically that I never had before. I wrote a letter to Michael. I've drug out every old song that I ever wanted to sing, and, and I've sung them. The Tennessee stud was long and lean, the color of the sun and his eyes were green. It's given me an enthusiasm and a, and a new uh, look at what, I, what my possibilities and capabilities are that I never thought I would get to experience. Well, imagine that, a young man inspiring an older guy to get in touch with his original self. Maybe a self he never knew. Well, Cash says the reaction he got after a concert he did in the Viper Room in Los Angeles, because ultimately Cash had to test these songs out. And the Viper Room is a really famous small room in L.A. And Johnny gets up there with just the guitar and he starts singing these songs alone and he doesn't know what's going to happen. He has no idea what the reaction will be. He's probably scared out of his wits, which is good. And, well, he plays, and the audience the audience went crazy. They wanted more, because they were hearing this colossal talent. Really, almost for the first time, it sounded like. Here's Cash talking about the reaction he got in that room that night. <clears throat> well, the reaction was like the 50s all over again. It was like that kind of excitement. The 50s, you know, like I had, it was, I had freedom of choice in the studio. 
I did an album the way I wanted to, exactly the way I wanted to, the way it felt good to me, the way it felt good to my producer, and the reaction from the critics and the fans was beautiful. To be free. Well, let's take a listen. Uh, take a listen to a couple of the cuts. Of course, the first, the most historic, his cover of Nine Inch Nails is in Trent Reznor's Hurt. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears a hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away And the lyrics just... Jump out at you. I hurt myself today to see if I just feel. I focus on the pain, the only thing that's real. Only an addict could have sung that song about addiction. Heroin, the drug of choice for Trent Reznor. Johnny Cash never did that, but it didn't matter. Here's Jesse's favorite God's going to cut you down. Can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. Go tell that long tongue liar, go and tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell him that God's gonna cut him down. And circling all the way back to that original theme, I wanted to read something that Stephen Turner closed out his book with and then play the song. And here's how that book ended, Man Called Cash. The realm that Johnny Cash lived in was clouded by pain and colored by grace. He had the ability to transform the rough and commonplace into objects fit for heaven, just as he had been transformed. Rick Rubin remembers him taking Ewan McCall's The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face and turning it from a love song into a devotional song. Quote, He loved that, said Rick Rubin. It came really natural to him. It seemed like his devotion for life came from his devotion for God. Again, an atheist talking about a Christian. This was not in the movie. Shame on the movie. Take a listen to Johnny. The first time Ever I saw your face I thought the sun rose In your eyes
And the moon and the stars Were the gifts you gave This is Lee Habib, The Life of Johnny Cash, born on this day in history in 1932. And the endless sky, my love, and the first time ever I kissed your mouth. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Nirvana, and it's off their first album. It's called School. And we love bumping in with music that relates to the segments we're about to do. I didn't know that song, and I'm a Nirvana fan. Thanks for that, Jesse. And uh, joining us right now to talk about a story that we keep hitting in various ways is Angela Browning. And we recently came across a Facebook group filled with mothers and parents, nearly 6,000 of them, who are working on changing the law in Florida to fix a big problem in their kids' lives. But it's not just a Florida problem. It's a national problem. Our kids just aren't getting enough, well, some would say not nearly enough, recess in school. And a new group of so-called recess moms has had enough. We're joined again by recess mom, Angela Browning. Angela, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, Angela, before we start, we always like to know, you know, where where are you in Florida? What particular town? Talk about your family a little bit. And then ultimately, let's talk about what led you to this space. Sure. Well, I live in Orlando, Florida, which is in Orange County uh, with my husband and our three boys. We have 10-year-old twins uh, who just started fourth grade last week and a six-year-old who started first grade. Um, I actually have a, uh, a law degree from Ave Maria School of Law, which is now down in Naples, Florida. Um, but I work as a paralegal for an insurance company. I like having the flexibility to be able to volunteer in my kids' classrooms uh, and, and be there for them when they need me. So, um, so that was a choice that I made. You bet. And so you know a little bit about the intersection of the law and the culture, particularly Ave Maria does a great job of doing that. And Ave Maria is a Catholic law school founded by the Domino's Pizza founder, Tom Monahan, and they do a great job at preparing people to do just what Angela's doing. Uh, so Angela, your, your kids uh, suddenly find themselves without a recess. Talk a little bit about where that came from, because obviously there had to be an anti-recess movement before there was a pro-recess movement, only that anti-recess movement probably had nothing to do with parents. Where did this thing spring up from? Whose idea was it? Sure. Well, what happens is, you know, our school districts tell us we, you know, we didn't cancel recess. But but what did happen is that uh, somewhere along the line, this testing uh, really just took over in our classrooms. And the focus switched from the well-being of our children to... Uh, you know, making sure that these children do well on these tests because there are very high stakes attached to them here in Florida. That's where our schools are graded. Um, our teachers, their VAM scores now come from those from those test scores. 
Um, so funding comes from them. And so my children, uh, all of a sudden, were coming home complaining about school, complaining that the day was too long, crying, asking me not to send them back to school. And my older boys had just begun second grade. Um, so I just, it just caused me to wake up and ask what was going on. Why all of a sudden were my eight-year-olds, who are supposed to love school and love learning, um, begging me not to send them back? And and so you're a parent, and obviously you, you take parenting really seriously because you could be practicing law, and what you're instead doing is doing paralegal work so that you can time shift and you can move move the work around, and you can have flexibility to be a present parent. So where did it spring in your head that this was an idea worth fighting for, and then what were the steps you took to fight? Well, I'll tell you, the first thing that I did was I asked, and that's what I think is really important. You know, we tell our group members, ask your kids if they're getting recess, because before this, I didn't even think to ask. So I asked my boys, well, what, what about recess? When you go out and you get to play with your friends, don't you get to have fun at recess? And they said, well, we don't get recess that often anymore. And I said, what do you mean you don't get recess that often anymore? And they said, well, we only get to go to recess once or twice a week when we don't have PE. And I, I was just horrified. I mean, some of my best memories during elementary school happened on the playground. And so I looked into it and I realized that my children were getting 15 minutes of recess once or twice a week. Uh, and I had a friend who, um, who lives near to me, but her daughters go to another school. And she and I talked about it. It was the same thing. Her kids were down to uh, two 20-minute recesses a week. And we just decided, you know, this is not okay. It's not okay for us. Our children are young. They have a right to be children. They have a right to play. Playing is developmentally appropriate learning for elementary school children. And we just talked one day in early October of 2014 and decided it was stop time to stop complaining to our friends and, and start being advocates for our children. Well, this is a great story. And I, uh, just a little backwards before we go forwards in the next segment. The, the testing and the state testing, and you raised that. And there, there are lots of us who believe that you've got to hold teachers and schools accountable, so we don't, sure. we don't hate testing. But the question sure. is, and I know my little girl's experiencing this here in Mississippi, it, she'll say, Dad, it never stops. It's yeah. test after test after test. We're testing for the test. We're prepping for the test. Then after the test, we take another test. And so, in a sense, you're not saying you don't want any accountability for the schools because we need a way to measure schools. It's just testing gone wild. Absolutely, 100% agree. I am not opposed to testing. I am opposed to uh, a, a culture where the stakes of testing are so high that it takes over our classrooms. Uh, we lose centers in the younger grades. We lose recess. We lose access to physical education. We lose access to art and music. These children are being tested and assessed, and they are being taught to fill in bubbles. And we need to teach children to think critically. We need to, to test them. We need to assess where they are. We need to make sure that we are seeing learning gains in our classrooms. But we can't let it take over teaching. It's we a, need to teach these children. That's so well said. And by the way, these very things we're cutting out might just help raise those test scores, Angela. That's the point, too, that test scores are complicated and the human mind is complicated. And you can't put people in a box. And my goodness, you can't anesthetize them by just having them repeat over and over the same old thing so they can fill out a bubble 
on a sheet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Recess Moms. And Angela Browning is one of them. And she's fighting the fight in Orlando and in the state of Florida. More after these messages with Angela. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love it when citizens take a stand and punch back at the bureaucracies that rule their lives and our lives. And it happens in every walk of life, but no place worse than in our local schools. And one mom, well, she decided to fight back against lack of recess. And by the way, it's not just recess, as we learned in the last segment. It's so many other things uh, because of testing regimes that are now crowding out space for our kids' development, and particularly their creative outlets in, in schools across this country. It's not just a Florida problem, but we have one mom, Angela Browning, who has sparked a mini-revolution in the state of Florida, and we pick up where we left off. Angela, so you know this is a problem, you identify it. I think what moms typically do is they go, and thank goodness there are present moms in the school, uh, they go, let's go to the school board. So what happens right. next? Uh, so we created a petition uh, for Orange County. We created a Facebook page. Uh, we grew our, our number of moms, so to speak. Um, we went to our school board, and we presented them with binders full of research. We came upon the research by accident, um, but there are very few subjects on which all of the experts agree, and recess is one of them. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the National Association for Sport and Physical Education, the CDC, the list goes on and on. They all find that recess is a critical part of the school day and crucial to a child's development. And so we brought this research to our school board. We presented them uh, with this research. We literally begged and pleaded um, for them to do the right thing, to restore 20 minutes of daily recess for all elementary school students in our district, and the answer was a resounding no. Um, it wasn't just a resounding no. We actually had school board members from the bench uh, say things like, if you take away the play, 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 the school gets an A, A, A. Oh, my goodness. And obviously, we were horrified. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And by the way, how condescending, and this is always what bugs you, is if you know different and you're a citizen and you go to these school boards, they act as if you're the rabble. Like, you don't have an informed opinion. And that may be one of the dumbest things anybody in education could ever say to somebody. And I say that as a dad who won superintendent of the year and teacher of the year, a tremendous educator. And he always fought for creative space for his kids and things like recess because he knew that's how you had an engaged child. So the school board blows you off. But little do they know, well, there was a lawyer in their midst and someone who was not, and a mom, even worse, a mom who is a lawyer and has some time. Talk about right. the next step, Angela. Well, 
We contacted our legislator, who um, ironically happens to be a teacher in our district. Uh, we, we went to him and we said, uh, listen, this is the problem. We have, um, we have presented our school board with solutions. They're not interested in them. They are interested in uh, giving us more and more excuses. And we need help. We don't know what to do. And he said to us, very honestly, he said, I don't know if I can help you. But I'm going to research this problem, and I'm sure as heck going to try. And and he went back and he researched the problem. He saw that, that we had gone about this the right way. And and he called us one day, uh, and he said, listen, I'm on my way back home from Tallahassee, and I want you to know that when I get home, I'm going to write a bill. And we're going to solve this problem throughout the state of Florida once and for all. Um, and we were thrilled. We, uh, we reached out and joined with other recess moms who had their own recess efforts in districts across the state of Florida. Um, we, we have moms that represent 24 uh, counties. And um, we just banded together, and we decided that we were going we were going to try to get this bill passed. And what happened? Because it's quite—it's almost a thriller, Angela. Because each step you think you're coming up, and then whack—you get whacked again. And then, thank goodness for persistent parents, you just keep coming back at them. What happened next? Well, uh, the bill was filed in Tallahassee in December of 2015. Uh, we worked our butts off trying to get the bill heard in committee. Um, we traveled to Tallahassee as recess moms. Uh, we would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, get ready, get in the car, drive four hours uh, north to Tallahassee, uh, spend all day meeting with state representatives and state senators, uh, eat dinner, and then come back and get home about midnight. So we managed to get the bill through the entire House with the help of our sponsor in the House, um, who, as I said, was Representative Renee Placencia. We were absolutely thrilled. There were only two legislators on the floor who voted against our bill. In the Senate, however, our first committee of reference was the Pre-K through 12 Education Committee, and that was chaired by a senator by the name of John Legg, uh, who did not like our bill. He said he felt that recess should continue to be handled locally. He refused to meet with us refused to take our phone calls, refused to respond to our emails. Um, he, he really would have nothing to do to us with us. So unfortunately, we weren't able to get the bill uh, through the Senate. Uh, but we dusted ourselves off. Uh, we have been working in the off-season, uh, and we're really, really thrilled about how things look for us next year. We've, um, we've made some really great progress. Well, good for you, because the school board was counting on you going away. And by the way, as my dad always said, he loved active parents, but so many superintendents didn't because they, they were seen as impediments and blockage to just doing what they felt like doing. And for my dad's sake, it was always, let's get the buy-in of the parents, because there's nothing like parents who agree with educators. It can be a really, you can, you can make some great changes. And you didn't quit. You, you, got, you got a 112 to 2 vote in the House. The Senate blocks you. Um, and you're back at it again. Talk to other moms listening out there in other states, Angela, about what they can do. Sure. Well, we're going to need, you know, we're going to need help to get this done. But as I said, we believe this will be our year. It's really important for parents to get engaged and get involved. Until I asked my children um, what they were doing at recess and how often they had it, I didn't know. So you've really got to ask your children, do you get that break in the school day and do you get it every single day? regardless of whether or not your kids have PE. If you find that your children are not getting that break, then you need to go to your principal and you need to ask them 
to implement a universally uh, recommended research-based 20-minute daily recess period. And you need to be proud of your advocacy for your children. You need to be willing to say to your principal, look, I think you're a wonderful person. I'm asking you to do this at the school level. If you can't do it or if you won't do it, I just want to let you know that I'm going to keep moving up the ladder until I get it done. Good for you. That's really that's really what we've done uh, on the state level. We're so proud to say that we have secured the um, the support of the future Speaker of the House and the future Senate President next year. Um, our bill will be sponsored again by Representative Placencia, and it will be sponsored in the Senate this year by a senator out of Miami-Dade County, um, Senator Flores, who is a mom who has young children. So, um, so we love that, and and I think it's really great, um, a really great kind of keep pushing, keep trying success story to just share with your audience that the future Speaker of the House, who has now committed to support our bill next session, is actually one of the two legislators who voted against the bill in the House last year. Good for you. And that's the power of a lot of moms continuing to push. And in the end, it is a democracy, and it is, in the end, uh, a state legislature that better respond to large groups of people or be voted out of office. I had one last question. For parents who hear physical ed or PE class is a substitute for recess, explain to the folks why PE, I mean, I know the answer to this, but what's the difference between PE and recess as it relates to your kid's development? Sure. PE is an incredibly important part of your child's education, but it is separate, distinct from recess. Um, There are unique skills that children learn during unstructured play on the playground. That's where they learn to problem solve. That's where they leadership skills and social skills and coping skills, um, and those things cannot be replicated in the classroom. PE is a class. It is structured. It is teacher-led. Your children are directed to do A, B, and C. Uh, it is not unstructured free play. And here in Florida, there are Florida standards attached to the PE curriculum, and those teachers are required to show learning games learning games. As a matter of fact, fifth graders uh, um, in our district or in our state are actually tested in PE at the end of the year. So PE is certainly worthwhile, but it's not a break from the rigor and the curriculum of the classroom. And the research that I referred to earlier shows that academics improve when children get a break from the classroom that is unstructured so that they can truly rejuvenate, refresh their minds, and come back to the classroom. And Angela, we all know this because we need that time in our lives throughout our lives. We just know this to be true, but it's great to have the research to back it up. Moms, recess moms, fighting for recess to be put back into Florida schools. Angela Browning leading the fight. Angela, thanks so much for joining us, and let's keep in touch and find out what happens in this legislative session coming up. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib. And this is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History segment, brought to us by Hillsdale College. Hillsdale is the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all things that matter in life. And if you're thinking about sending a child to college, there is no better place. I've spent many, many days there and even gone into some of the classes. And what an experience it's been for me. I went to a really good law school. And when I took the Constitution and American history classes that Dr. Larry Arn taught, my goodness, I wasn't ready. Well, today you're about to hear a story about a person you definitely know, but actually you don't. continent in the world where people don't wear Levi's and have that little patch on the back uh, with his name on it. He had a wonderful spirit, and that made him so extraordinary. The Levi's brand um, is one of the bedrocks. It's just the bedrock of American culture. There's a symbol so tied to America, and we all have owned a piece of it. America has lived its life in jeans, blue jeans, Levi's blue jeans. After all, blue jeans have become a metaphor for America itself, especially Levi's. This is the story of how Levi Strauss threaded, stitched, and wove his iconic product into the fabric of America. Loeb Strauss was born in Bavaria on February 26, 1829, as the fourth child of Jewish parents who were peddlers, a profession relegated to Jews by Bavarian law. When Loeb became a teenager, his older brothers immigrated to New York City and immediately began sending back letters encouraging the rest of the family to make the move to America. America is a wonderful country. One can achieve success through careful attention to business and hard work. Although our earnings are modest. Listen, listen, my brothers. And no laws hostile to Jews. We are already very happy and become happier and happier every day. We have also made some modest money. Be courageous and follow us. Big hugs from Jonathan and Litton. Following the death of Loeb's father in 1847, the 19-year-old Loeb, with his mother and sister, traveled on board a German immigrant sailing ship for seven and a half arduous weeks to the land of the free. Where his older brothers have been operating for four years. Here's New York University historian, Hesia Diner. 
In the United States, nobody cared. Uh, synagogues could do whatever they wanted. Uh, there were no attempts by the government to regulate or uh, control the inner life of the Jews. Uh, it was up to Jews to do whatever they wanted. And it has been described that what raged in Bavaria in the 1820s, 30s, 40s was America fever. The newcomers squeezed into the tight, dark quarters of the Strauss brothers' New York City apartment on Canal Street. It is here in Manhattan where Jean's boutiques are lined up one after the other. Loeb Strauss began his unstoppable rise to become one of the greatest American industrialists. On January 24th, 1848, gold is discovered in Northern California. One of us needs to take a first-hand look at the market out there. Phil Anschutz writes in Out Where the West Begins that Strauss planned to get rich by exploiting market forces instead of prospecting for gold. During the gold rush era, he writes, there were more prospectors than there were tents, shovels, pickaxes, buckets, and pans. The state of California was completely settled within three years. Well, then what are we waiting for? For you to go to California. But before Loeb Strauss went west, he became an American citizen. He swore an oath to the American Constitution and renounced the Bavarian king forever. At about the same time, he started going by the name of Levi Strauss. Here again is Hesia Diner. So for this young man to come and want to be able to communicate with his customers, to say I'm Loeb Strauss may have been more uh, difficult than to say I'm Levi Strauss. I'm not sure I'd want to say that this was a step towards assimilation because he's keeping his Hebrew name, but it's a way of adaptation to uh, the American circumstance. Levi Strauss took a steamship from New York City through Panama and at 24 years of age opened for business as a wholesale trader to the San Francisco gold miners in 1853. Pants, why pants? asked Mr. Strauss to the miners' saddening class. One of Levi Strauss' regular customers was the tailor Jacob Davis, a fellow Jewish immigrant residing in Reno. In addition to his daily business, Davis experimented with various sewing techniques in order to make the gold diggers' work pants even sturdier. The 49ers valued the practical trousers from the tailor in Reno. But the pants would bust at the seams when they stuffed tools or rock samples in the pockets. Complaints from the customers' wives began to pile up because only after a few weeks their husbands' pants would rip. In this crisis, the tailor came up with a sensational idea. Davis used copper rivets to affix the pockets to prevent tearing when the fabric was put under extreme strain. It is a stroke of genius. However, he didn't have the $68 to register the patent. Here's Lynn Downey, historian for Levi Strauss & Co. 
he first went to Levi. And I think it's because Levi had such a reputation as a strong businessman, an ethical businessman, and someone who had resources, even though Levi was not a manufacturer. Jacob thought that he could help him start this new part of the business. Levi and Jacob had a little trouble getting the patent. There were patents already for rivets in shoes, and the patent office thought that putting rivets in pants was the same thing and not a new invention. But they kept reapplying. And eventually, on May 20th, 1873, Levi Strauss and Co. and Jacob Davis received the U.S. patent for strengthening pocket openings with rivets. He could have said no to Jacob Davis. He could have said, you know, I don't have any manufacturing facilities. I've never done manufacturing before. I'll just stick with my dry goods. But he didn't do that. He had vision. Um, and that's the kind of vision that makes you a pioneer. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Levi Strauss. We got through the first part. Hang in there and catch the second part right after these messages. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're continuing with our This Day in History, The Life of Levi Strauss. And by the way, the similarities to the life of Irving Berlin, anti-Semitism drove him out of his home in Russia, and ultimately this Jewish immigrant ended up writing White Christmas, and he was from Russia, but he wrote God Bless America. Uh, We're celebrating very often the life stories of so many of the great men who came here from the arts and from business. And we do that thanks to Hillsdale college who brings us this day in history every day. And by the way, it was pointed out to me by Hengler who did such great work on this piece. And also in Mr. Antris's book that in essence, Levi Strauss created the first brand before there was Coca-Cola. There was Levi's. Let's pick up where the story left off. The rivet idea turned out to be a jackpot. The real inventor, Jacob Davis, became a floor manager at Levi Strauss Mercantile Business, which was now specializing in the manufacturing of dungarees. It was 1873, and the Levi Strauss brand was born. The first decision for Levi and Jacob was to decide what fabric to choose. Here again is Lynn Downey. Men had worn denim pants, unriveted denim pants, for decades as workwear. 
So when Levi and Jacob decided to, to choose a fabric to make these new pants from, it made sense to choose denim. It was what, what, what men were used to wearing for mining and farming and if you were a cowboy or whatever. So it became tr- the traditional fabric all the way you know, to today. Levi aimed to create consistency across the product line, writes Anschutz. The brand bore his name. It needed to have a reputation for quality. The child this Levi Strauss gave his nephews positions of responsibility early on. Now he needed their advice. In a few years, the patent on the riveted work pants would expire. What else could be done to make the durability of their pants more appealing to customers? The durability of our Levi's favorite nephew, Sigmund, proved to be an ingenious marketing expert in the discussion about the expiring patent. Might I suggest this? This is, I this like is it. brilliant. This is exactly what we need. The idea for the brand name was born. To the brand. To the brand. In order to accentuate the durability of the original riveted pants and to distinguish the product line from their competitors, Levi Strauss & Co. developed a leather sewn-on patch in 1886 with a two-horse brand, which is the company's trademark to this day. In 1850, a man named Levi rounded up two stacks and hitched them to a pair of pants. Pants so tough, he promised a new pair free if they ripped. To prove this, he set up this unusual demonstration. And he put this symbol on the back of every pair of original blue Levi's. As Ann Schutz writes, Consumers did not need to be literate to understand that Levi's were tough. Soon, profits from the production of pants surpassed all other earnings from the mercantile business. From 1890 onwards, all articles of clothing that are produced by Levi Strauss & Co. are systematically, consecutively numbered. The riveted work pants received the production number 501 which to this day is the designation for the classic style of Levi's jeans. The strength of the product is in its true to original form. The 501 line is not subject to any dictate of fashion. To this day, they are produced according to the traditional pattern and suggest to the wearer independence, freedom, and the American way of life. As the founder of the company, Levi Strauss grew older and enjoyed an ever-increasing popularity with his employees. Here's Lynn Downey. His employees were instructed not to call him Mr. Strauss, but to call him Levi, which I think is very unusual to be that informal with his employees. Around 1960, someone here at the company interviewed a woman who had worked in our factory when Levi Strauss was still alive. And she said, he was tough, but a fine fellow. And I think what that means is that he was all business. His life was about his business. And he wanted his business to run smoothly. He wanted to make a profit. And so he probably had very, very high standards. But the other side of that is the side of Levi that was such a philanthropist and was such a caring, giving person. 
So I think that he probably was very balanced. He was a tough businessman, but he was also a good person. The success of this company has been built from our... At 61, Levi Strauss retired from daily business operations. The company will be left in all of your names. And brought in his four nephews as joint partners. Anschutz writes, success granted Strauss more leisure time to devote to charity. He had always been a generous provider when he lived in San Francisco. He took special interest in orphans, helping to establish the Pacific Hebrew Orphan Asylum and Home. Although Strauss was Jewish, he contributed to causes across religious lines, supporting Catholic and Protestant orphanages as well. Thank you, Uncle. Education was also an important cause. He established scholarships at the University of California and gave money to the California School for the Deaf. Levi's death in 1902, at the age of 73, made headlines. San Francisco declared it a business holiday so citizens could go to his funeral. And the flags flew at half-mast. Just a few years after Levi's death, on April 18, 1906, the company's headquarters were burned to the ground due to the estimated 7.8 magnitude Great San Francisco Earthquake. Here again is Levi Strauss and co-historian Lynn Downey explaining what happened next. They didn't have to rebuild the business. They were wealthy. They could have just walked away, but they didn't. They rebuilt the business from the ground up, and they started from scratch. Re rebuilt the company, started making jeans again, started wholesaling the dry goods again, and continued the business in the name of their uncle. Decades later, World War II would take the jeans to Europe. During World War II, American soldiers would take their Levi's jeans with them, um, both to Asia and to Europe, and they would wear them when they were on leave. So this was the first exposure of Levi's jeans to areas outside of the United States. In 1943, during World War II, the company registered a new trademark. The basis for the idea is the eagle, which is also part of the U.S. National Coat of Arms symbolizing freedom and independence. The embroidered design, which is reminiscent of the flapping wings of an eagle, is stitched on the back pockets of the jeans. Levi Strauss never wore his own pants, and yet today, millions of people all over the world wear them and share in the American way of life. Levi Strauss this day in history. Great job on that, Greg. And there you have it, another great American story. Man comes here with nothing, builds something big, and gives much of it away. We hear that story over and over and over again. And just a couple of other facts. The zipper fly made its first appearance in 1954, and not everybody was thrilled. Someone allegedly wrote to the company asking, why the heck did you put a zipper in your jeans? It's like peeing into the jaws of an alligator. 
Little did he know how often this would become a problem. Also, Levi's weren't called jeans until the 1950s. Jeans used to be called overalls, which was the old name for workwear. But after James Dean wore a pair in Rebel Without a Cause, they became wildly popular. The kids wanted another name for overalls, though, since that was a term their parents used. So they started calling them jeans. The oldest pair of blue jeans in the Levi's archives are kept in a fireproof safe to which only two people know the combination. They were over 130 years old and are estimated to be worth $150,000. They don't look that much different from the ones today. And more than a century later, consumers worldwide wear blue jeans an average of 3.5 days a week and own 8.6 pair. And by the way, we will do more stories out of Out Where the West Begins as well by Phil Anschutz because there are so many great ones. George Mortimer Pullman, Henry Wells and William Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Buffalo Bill Cody, Samuel Colt, Meyer Guggenheim, John D. Rockefeller, and Cyrus McCormick, and last but not least, Brigham Young. You know the names. We're going to cover them all over the next months and years to come. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And this was brought to you by Hillsdale College's This Day in History series. <laughs>